0: It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important stories.
1: The socialization of transportation, education, energy, housing, and water. What it means is that government controls it through rules and regulations.
0: The latest in politics and world affairs.
1: Under this guise of bipartisanship and nonpartisanship, it's actually tapping down the truth.
0: Today's current opinions and ideas.
1: On an equal field in the battle of ideas, mistruths and misconceptions is getting us into a world of hurt.
0: Is it freedom or is it force? Let's have a conversation.
1: Indeed, and welcome to the Kim Munson Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're each treasured, you're valued, you have purpose. Today, strive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. My friends, we were made for this moment. And I get to work with an amazing team. That is producer Joe, producer Nicole, and Luke, Rachel, Zach, Echo, Charlie, all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. We are an independent voice on an independent station, and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus freedom force force versus freedom if something's a good idea you should not have to force people to do it and we are doing something very special for this week of Thanksgiving we have pre-recorded uh, these shows with very special guests and I am so pleased and honored to have on the line with me Dr. Alan Gelzo. he's an American historian and he serves as senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities and director of the initiative on politics and statesmanship in the James Madison program at Princeton University University, and he formerly was a professor at the History of Gettysburg College. Dr. Gelzo, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you, Kim.
1: And it's so appropriate to have you as our first guest. This is the day after the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, and uh, November nineteenth, after the the battle, which was in July. Uh, let's see, July one through July three. Um, now now the year, 1863, am I remembering it right? Still
2: 1863, I guess.
1: Okay. Uh, the battle was, was in the summer. And I guess, first of all, let's talk about the significance of the battle. And uh, I guess that's a great segue into your most recent book, Robert E. Lee, A Life. And Robert E. Lee, uh, after the Battle of Gettysburg, Can you imagine getting up and what was going through his mind on July 4 in 1863 after this battle?
2: Oh, I think it could be boiled down to one sentence, and that is, how do I get out of here? (laughs) Uh, True. (laughs) Because the the, the great battle that occurs at Gettysburg on on July 1, 2, and 3 of of 1863 was was really a, a major initiative of Lee's. This was really Lee's idea about how the Southern Confederacy, which had been carrying on this civil war now for a little bit more than two years, this was a piece in what Lee thought was the only really workable strategy for the Confederacy to achieve independence from the United States. And he reasoned this way. The Southern Confederacy, which at this point is composed effectively of 11 states, of the American South that have tried to secede from the Union. Lee understood the South didn't have the heft, economically, industrially, and otherwise, that the northern states had. So that in going into this civil war, the odds were all against the Confederacy. If the Confederacy was going to win, it was going to have to go into this heavyweight bout, trying to score a surprise knockout. In the first round or two because if the war ground on after that then the confederacy would simply be worn down and worn away and would lose the war so lee's reasoning is we have to take the initiative this confederate army which he called the army of northern virginia has to jump from virginia across the potomac into maryland into pennsylvania and in the summer of eighteen sixty three it has to get loose in pennsylvania because if it does, if it can do that successfully, in fact, if it can find some way to fight a battle with the major United States force opposing it, which is the Army of the Potomac, his reasoning was that northern public opinion would be so fatigued at this, it would be so revolted by it, that they would demand that the Lincoln administration enter negotiations with the Confederates. And at that point, once, once negotiations began, lee understood no one was going to go back into this this horrible fratricidal war so lee's gambling but it's a good gamble it's an intelligent gamble and it had a lot going for it because not only not only is he looking at the state of mind of northerners he's also looking at what's happened at election time back in the preceding november Abraham Lincoln's party, the Republicans, had lost something like 35 seats in the House of Representatives and two key governorships in the North, governorship of New York, the governorship of New Jersey. Well, the governorships of Pennsylvania and Ohio were up for election in the fall of 1863. Lee knows if he can show that the Lincoln administration is helpless and impotent and can't deal with the Confederates who are invading Pennsylvania, then voters in Pennsylvania and Ohio are going to go to the polls, they're going to elect anti-administration governors, and that means you're going to have this central chunk of the northern states in opposition to Lincoln. And they can just fold their arms and say to President Lincoln, We're not cooperating with this war any longer. You're gonna to have to open negotiations with the Confederacy. And at that moment, really, it's it's inevitable. The Confederates are going to obtain their independence. So Lee launches this invasion of Pennsylvania, and yes, there's an element of the gamble to it, but it's a shrewd gamble. And the really terrifying thing about this, Kim, is how very close he came to winning that gamble. Because if Lee's army had been victorious at Gettysburg, as for two of the three days of the battle it really was, or even if it had just been able to run willy-nilly around the Pennsylvania countryside without the Union doing very much to stop them, it would have had an incredibly destructive effect. And perhaps we would be looking at a very different kind of America today, than we were looking at in 1863, or that we look at today, as it really exists.
1: Well, Dr. Gelzo, the Civil War. Many people think that it was really a war about slavery, which ultimately that that question and, and it was really the question of would slavery be e- expanded into um, the new territories. That was a, that's my understanding. That was the initial kind of question. Uh, on on that, um, but what Lincoln looked at it is he wanted to keep the union together, and was Lee looking more at like a, a state's rights issue, or, or how would you frame that?
2: Well, the causes of the American Civil War are always a lively subject of debate, and I like to get philosophical at moments like that and say, all right, let's talk about what causes something there's a real sense in which sectionalism is one cause because if slavery had been legal let's say in minnesota and maine and florida and louisiana there would never have been a civil war because they're not in a position to support each other but the states where slavery was legal were all contiguous they all shared common borders you could look at a map and look at those slave states And you could say, hey, I could see that would be a a functioning, viable, independent nation. So sectionalism is one. There's another cause here, too, and that is federalism. Ours is a federal system of government. It's states in a union under a federal constitution. But the habit of federalism let a lot of people think that the states somehow possessed a sovereignty of their own, which, if you read the Constitution with any kind of care, you realize that's really not the case. But many people talk themselves into believing that states had that kind of sovereignty. And so it was easy in those days then to conclude, well, if states have that kind of sovereignty, then they can walk away from the union. I mean, if that's not sovereignty, we don't know what is. But then ultimately there's slavery. Slavery is the one item in this equation, which if you take it out, there's no civil war. I don't care what the circumstances are. But put slavery back into the equation, that's when you get civil war. So at the end of the day, if people ask me to put my finger on one thing and call it the cause of the civil war, there's simply no question, it was slavery. And you know the people who tell us that are the Southerners themselves. In the resolutions that their state conventions and legislatures passed at the very beginning of the civil war in 1861, they're all very candid about this. We're doing this to protect slavery afterwards in the years after the war a lot of southerners who were embarrassed by that would try to insist well no 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 it was it was about these other things well yeah to a certain degree but not to a degree that put the issue of slavery in the shadow if you've got to put your finger on one thing it's slavery
1: but many of the s- those that fought on the southern side did not own slaves So how did they get co-opted into that?
2: Well, part of it was because you have to look carefully at what we mean by slave ownership. If you look at the southern population right on the eve of the Civil War, Probably slave ownership amounted to no more than one third of the white population of the South. It's
3: quite a few, quite but a bit. That's look,
2: yeah. yeah, that's 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 a significant chunk in its own right. But it's actually more widespread than that, because you have to remember that slaves are not just owned by individuals; they're also owned by families. So, in fact, you can have someone who is a junior member of a family. I'd say, someone who is an eighteen-year-old all right, they may not not be owning slaves in their own right, but they might be part of a family that does. Ah, at that moment, suddenly the percentage of Southerners who are involved in the slave system gets a lot bigger, just in mathematical terms. And then if you look at the composition of the Southern armies, especially at Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, a very fine analysis of this was done by uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Joseph Gladhar at the University of North Carolina. He analyzed the slave ownership patterns of the soldiers of Lee's army. There, the patterns of slave ownership were actually larger than at the than, than the percentages in the southern population as a whole, so that the Confederate army, actually had an even clearer investment in protecting slavery than you might say the population of the South as a whole. So don't underestimate, just by doing simple numerical calculations, don't underestimate the pervasiveness of the slave system, because many people who might not actually own a slave were involved in the slave system in a variety of ways.
1: Wow. Fascinating. Uh, We have just a couple of minutes before we go to break. Um, Let's just talk a little bit about your books that that you, I mean, you've written a number of different books. The most recent was Robert E. Lee. But you also did a book on Gettysburg that I think is very important. And many of these books, I really highly recommend that people have them in hardback copy in their freedom libraries. Would you say that there is one book that you've written that stands out among the others? Or would you say they're all easy? equal in, in, uh, in, in, importance.
2: Kim, that's like asking me, which is my favorite
1: child.
2: Uh, <laughs> I could get in a lot of trouble that way. Um, of course, I, what I'm tempted to say is, oh, no, no, I regard them all equally, therefore your listeners should all go out and buy all <laughs> of them. <laughs> but uh, the Gettysburg book is, um, it's, it's, it's a significant book in a lot of ways. It's a very big book. It spent eight weeks on the New York Times bestseller list when it came out back in 2013. And I'm, yeah, I would say I'm a little bit fond of it. Um, I'm also fond of some of the stuff that I've done on the subject of Abraham Lincoln and my early book on Lincoln from 1999, Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President. I suppose if I had to pick one off the line and say that one's my favorite, it might very likely be Redeemer President. But I have to say that writing Gettysburg was a tremendous uh, amount of fun because I was doing it right there in Gettysburg itself so that I was talking about this great battle while being able to walk out my door and walk around over the very battlefield i was describing and i think that gave me something of an advantage in the sense that when i was talking about the battle i wasn't just talking about a map and rectangles and squares moving across the map i was actually looking at the lay of the land itself and seeing the ground as the participants in the battle had very much seen it so that gave a particularly important attraction to the writing of that book
1: Fascinating. In that book is Gettysburg: The Last Invasion by Dr. Alan Gelzo, and uh, we're having a great conversation about the Gettysburg Address. This is being broadcast on the on the twentieth, the day after uh, the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, and just such important conversations. We get to do this. I want to say thank you to the Harris family for their gold sponsorship of the show, and also thank you to the National Shooting Sports Foundation for their gold sponsorship of the show as well. And we get to do all this because we have amazing sponsors and one of those is the roger mangan state farm insurance team and they understand that there are unknowns that can keep you up at night and they can help with life insurance and health insurance needs to replace lost income so call roger mangan at 303-795-8855 for a complimentary appointment like a good neighbor roger mangan's insurance team is there so
4: i switched my insurance to the roger mangan state farm insurance agency get this I actually talked to Roger Mangan, who has been helping people with their insurance coverage in our community for 47 years. He helped me create a State Farm personalized price insurance plan for my home and auto and explained affordable options. For personalized service and peace of mind that you are working with a team that cares about you and your family, call Roger Mangian now at 303-795-8855. Kim highly recommends the Roger Mangian State Farm Insurance Team. Again, that number is 303-795-8855.
5: Johnny Stubbs Services uses only the best quality products to ensure that your heating and cooling systems run efficiently and last for years. Johnny Stubbs Services' team of experts is available to provide the proper guidance and help you make informed decisions about your heating and cooling needs. Johnny Stubbs Services prides themselves on delivering prompt and reliable service and stands behind their work with a satisfaction guarantee. Johnnystubbservices.com, the trusted contractor for all your heating and air conditioning needs. That's Johnnystubbservices.com. <laughs>
1: And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M O N S O N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at Kim com as well. And thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice on an independent station. And we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. And we have pre recorded these shows for the week of Thanksgiving and have very special guests. And we're kicking it off with Dr. Alan Gelzo. He's an American historian and he serves as senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities and director of the Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship. In the James Madison program at Princeton, and he was a professor at Gettysburg College as well. And he is an amazing author. His most recent book is on Robert E. Lee. He has a, a very important book on Gettysburg, but you can get all of his books. Uh, you can go to his website, and that is, let me get it. It's Alan Galzo, that's G-U-E-L-Z-O dot com. So it's A-L-L-E-N-G-U-E-L-Z-O dot com. Dr. Galzo, we, before we went to break, we were talking about the book Gettysburg and that you were there, that uh, going out onto the battlefield. And I've been to Gettysburg once, and it was too fast uh, because I really would like to spend time time there. But we actually ended up, I was with my daughter. She was ro- moving from New York to Kansas City. And so we were driving uh, driving from New York to Kansas City, obviously, and we stopped in Gettysburg and it was during the summer, and we ended up at a farm-to-table event, and there were probably, I bet there were at least 30 people at this long table uh, there at Gettysburg, and the home was an old, um, I think it was an old church. It was now a home, and there was actually a pew that they had there that had blood on it from when they were bringing in soldiers to operate them, operate on them. I, I guess it was a hospital. I think it was a church that became a hospital. And I kind of stood there and I am like, this is this is something that I, I'm experiencing. I couldn't quite put my hand on it, Dr. Gelso.
2: Well, during the battle, almost every building in Gettysburg was liable to be impressed as as a hospital facility of some sort. This is a battle that involves Something on the order of 180,000 people. I'm talking right now just about the soldiers. 180,000 people who are either in uniform or they're working for the armies as civilian teamsters and whatnot. All of them compressed into a square of not more than 20 miles. Gettysburg, up to this point, had been a town whose population amounted to about 2,500 people. Suddenly, almost overnight, you have this stupendous influx. And, of course, it's not only... 180 or 190,000 human beings, it's, it's all the horses that have to pull wagons and pull artillery. All of this now has to get compressed into this small space. And then, of course, the fighting itself begins, and the fighting is deadly. This is 19th century warfare, when everyone understood that casualty lists were going to be high, and they were generally speaking, we could probably say that at the Battle of Gettysburg, from both sides, something like 9,000 were killed. You know, maybe an Maybe we can guess, and it is a guesstimate, because in the 19th century, they didn't really have terribly accurate ways of totaling these things, probably about 4,000 to 4,500 dead on each side after three days of fighting. Take that and multiply that by anywhere from three to five times, and then you start to get a sense of the wounded. Just take it as a whole, probably about a third of each army ended up as a casualty of some sort. Well, for the wounded, where do you put them? There are there are no easily available hospitals. There are no ready-made facilities. So what you have to do is you have to set things up wherever you can find shelter. That means you take over houses, you take over barns, you take over churches, you take over anything with a roof, and sometimes you take over things that don't even have a roof. And the medicine of the 19th century this is long before they have any understanding of germs or infection the the ways of dealing with casualties with wounds we would regard as, as being almost barbaric because if someone is wounded let's say in the arms or the legs the only really secure treatment for that is amputation <sighs> If someone is wounded in the chest or in the abdomen, for the most part, they have to be set aside because the wounds are going to be fatal. They're really going to be fatal from loss of blood, or they're going to be fatal over a longer and more painful period of several days just from infection. And that kind of situation is enough to make our jaws drop in horror at the prospect. And yet this is going on all through the town of Gettysburg. It has to be done quickly. It has to be done hurriedly. The amputations can't be done with, in many cases, anesthetic of any sort.
5: Oh my
3: gosh.
2: And, and the amputations themselves are being done by doctors who are quite literally using saws. <sighs> we would look at it and say, well, that's what a carpenter does to deal with wood. No, that is... What doctors had to deal with in the middle of the 19th century in cases like the Battle of Gettysburg. So it's not just that one building, Kim. There are a number of places scattered all around the Gettysburg area that were impressed for use as hospitals, which have stains like that. I've been in one house on the battlefield, for instance, that you can readily be taken to one part of the floor. The blood stains blood stains from the amputations, from the bleeding of the wounds, stain was still there on the floorboards. And my my experience has been that that can be repeated and pointed to in place after place, location after location in the Gettysburg area.
1: So, okay, Dr. Gelzo, I have to ask this question with these amputations. I mean, the loss of blood would be so significant. What did they... Do to stop that?
2: You tied them off, like, you tied the limbs off like a tourniquet, you sutured them up, and you hoped for the best. And sometimes your hope was rewarded, and sometimes it wasn't. the The way that death stalked these armies occurs in a proportion that we would find simply unimaginable today. But yet, in the 19th century, such was the nature of, of medicine and medical practice. I simply didn't have any other way of dealing with these things.
1: Goodness. It takes my breath away as I, I think about that. Okay, I've got the next question. And this, this last May, it was the first time that I'd made it to Virginia, to Monticello and Montpelier, mm-hmm. and— you said that ultimately the war came down to slavery and Lee's uh, army was the army of uh, northern Virginia how how is it so we have we have Thomas Jefferson who writes these beautiful words in the declaration that all men are created equal and that can't match up with with slavery so, so how 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 did this that Virginia is is now at at war regarding slavery? Because if all men are created equal, you can't have slavery. How would you address that?
2: You address it by understanding that human nature follows ideals, but it also follows self interest, and these two voices are often in competition with each other. It's almost like the good angel and the bad angel on your shoulder whispering in your ear. The ideal was the one captured by Jefferson in his words in the Declaration of Independence. And they are great ideals, and they are true. But self-interest said, owning slaves is what makes us money. Slave labor is cheap, you don't have to pay wages to slaves and you can work them for as long as you like and in as many ways as you like slaves never go on strike there's no union for slaves and so self-interest enters into it and when self-interest collides with ideals two things will happen the ideals will win and people will walk away from something like slavery that's what we hope will happen, and indeed it did in many places in America, from the Revolution to the Civil War. But in many other places, people made the other choice. They made the choice of averting their eyes, they made the choice of denial. And sometimes that choice took the form of saying, well, these people whom we're enslaving, they're not really people like us, despite the fact that. They're born and they die. They get sick. They get healthy. They have children. They have two arms. They have two legs. They have a head. They, they have eyes. They have a nose. They're human. But yet you look at them and you say, well, no, no, they're, they're not really human, at least not human like us. And therefore, it's legitimate for us to enslave them. That becomes the excuse that people invent. And isn't this, isn't this always the way human beings do things? when we decide we want to dispose of someone we find inconvenient whether it's it's jews in germany whether it's populations that are not wanted by larger populations what's the first step towards genocide dehumanization convince yourself and convince others that these people whom you plan to do something evil to really really don't deserve anything more than what they're being given because they're they're not really again like us and when you start to think in those terms that is when people start to give themselves permission to do all kinds of horrible things to each other so there are two paths there's the paths of the ideal and the ideal is the one jefferson captures in his words But then there's the other path of self-interest, which Jefferson, alas, captures in his behavior and which Southerners, despite their allegiance to a nation founded on that proposition that all men are created equal, nevertheless, self-interest persuaded them that they could invent a fantasy that would allow them to get away with the exact opposite of what the principles in the Declaration described.
1: Well, in... Uh, well, I, I think what we'll do is we'll go to break because I, I want to talk about groups because I, I see in 2023 America, if you can divide, as you say, d- d- define uh, a person as not like us, and and you start to put into groupthink instead of the individual, I think that's where we get into. A lot of trouble where people, humans, can inflict a lot of harm on other humans. I'm talking with Dr. Alan Gelso. And a couple of things I wanted to mention. First of all, uh, Hooters Restaurants is a sponsor of the show. It's a really important story how I got to know them. And that is the story of freedom and free markets and capitalism and PBIs. I call them PBIs, politicians, bureaucrats, and interested parties that were trying to take away the freedom of, of people to be entrepreneurs. It's a really important story. You can find that at my website but uh, hooters restaurants has five locations loveland aurora lone tree westminster and colorado springs and they have great specials monday through friday for lunch and for dinner and uh, also wanted to mention A Climate Conversation, which is a documentary that I'm involved in. Uh, it is the brainchild of Walt Johnson. He's a geophysicist, a good friend. He and his wife are friends of mine. And it was on his heart to create a documentary to have just a real conversation about this whole climate Uh, climate issue out there and uh, you can find more information and see the movie at a climate and it is just asking questions in the socratic method about this particular issue so again you can get more information by going to a climate we get to do all this because of great sponsors and one of those is karen levine
6: with the limited number of homes in the colorado front range market karen levine can help you achieve your home buying or selling vision Karen has the right connections, technology, and strategies to help you buy or sell your home or to purchase a new build. Whether you're feeling overwhelmed or want someone to take the wheel, or you just need a second opinion, you can rest assured that Remax realtor Karen Levine is the right agent for you. Call Karen Levine at 303-877-7516. Karen is the trusted professional who strives for excellence. That number is 303-877-7516.
7: Boson Law is a local law firm dedicated to helping injured individuals in Denver and the surrounding areas fight for the justice they deserve. Boson Law focuses on personalized representation tailored to your unique situation with one-on-one attention and counsel and consistent communication. Boson Law personal injury attorneys have extensive trial experience and have successfully represented clients against the interests of powerful corporations, manufacturers, insurance companies, and government agencies. Contact Boson Law at 303-999-9999 for a complimentary in-person consultation. Again, that number is 303-999-9999. Call now at 303-999-9999. Nine, 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 nine.
6: Our future depends on educated, informed, and active citizens. You can do your part by reading Dr. James Lyons Weiler's latest articles at Popular Rationalism on Substack. That's popularrationalism.substack.com.
1: Welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M O N S O N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. You can email me at Kim at Kim com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. Uh, we have pre recorded these shows for the week of th- Thanksgiving, and really pleased to have on the line with me Dr. Alan Gelzo, who teaches at Princeton University. University, And uh, before we get back into the conversation, I wanted to mention this, the Center for American Values. It is located right here in Pueblo, Colorado. Pueblo is known as the home of heroes because there are four Medal of Honor recipients that grew up in Pueblo, Colorado. And so the center was founded by Medal of Honor recipient Drew Dix and Brad Padula, who is a uh, award-winning documentary maker, and they realized that we need to do two things, honor our Medal of Honor recipients, and then also instill in ourselves and teach our children these values of America, of honor, integrity, and patriotism. So they're putting together some great educational programs as well. You can get more information by going to the uh, Center for American Values, and that website is AmericanValueCenter.org. I'm talking with doctor Alan Gelzo and you can find his books at alangelzo.com. That's A L L E N G U E L Z O dot com. And you are working on a new book, correct, Doctor Gelzo? Yes.
2: Yes, in fact I'm working on several of them simultaneously. And what's which, the, which I suppose is, a, is, it represents a very bad habit on my part. I, <laughs> I, I, I write books. I'm, I'm, I, I, should, I maybe I should apologize for. Maybe I should be looking for a twelve-step process. Do you think can <laughs> uh, help I, me get over this? Uh,
1: I don't think so. The important thing is, is that you finish them, and that and you <laughs> yeah. have a record of doing that. So, so well, I, uh, and and so, what is the, your most recent books? What are you writing on? Uh,
2: Well, I will have coming out uh, in February uh, a new book on Lincoln entitled Our Ancient Faith, Lincoln, Democracy, and the American Experiment. Mm. The title is drawn from a speech Lincoln gave in Peoria, Illinois, in October of 1854, where he talks about democracy as our ancient faith. He talks about the Declaration of Independence capturing that ancient faith. So the book is really about what Lincoln had to say on the subject of democracy in its various aspects, like elections, like majority rule, like toleration like natural law and morality and the role that all of these play in the making and perpetuation of democracy
1: fascinating wow and so 1854 he's uh, is that early in his uh, political career or he'd been in politics for a few years or what when was that exactly
2: oh he'd been in politics for 20 years before that okay and, and it hadn't turned out all that particularly well for him either, because he gets into the state legislature in 1834, and he's, he has four very fulfilling terms in the state legislature. But then he, in the 1840s, runs for the United States House of Representatives. He gets elected, but his term in office is a very disappointing one. Uh, he is a Whig, he's a member of the Whig Party. That means, first of all, he's in the minority, but secondly, it means he puts himself in opposition to President James Polk, who at that point was conducting the war in Mexico. And Lincoln has to stand up and criticize Polk, which means that brings down on his head a lot of criticism for not adequately supporting the Mexican War, and he doesn't run for reelection, And he goes home to Illinois. And as he said in an autobiographical sketch that he wrote, he really had given up on politics. He didn't really see much of a future for him after this in politics. And then suddenly in 1854, he gets back on the stage. It's like Abraham Lincoln 2.0. And the reason he does it is because in 1854, Congress passed the so-called Kansas-Nebraska Act, which for the first time in in lincoln's political life made possible the introduction of legalized slavery into the western territories he looked at that and said if that's going to be a possibility in the western territories then that means eventually slavery is going to take over the whole country including his own home state of illinois which at that point was a free state there was no slavery in illinois and this is what propels lincoln back into the political forefront he gives the great speech at Peoria in October of 1854, and he talks about our ancient faith. And from that point, Kim, he follows a trajectory upwards, which will, six years later, lead him to election as the 16th president of the United States.
1: Wow. Remarkable. And the fact that he grew up in a basically a, a, a cabin and read by candlelight, but he read important books at the end of my show I say read great books we have choices to make with what what we do each day the each hour each minute we we have choices that's a beautiful thing about the li, li, uh, living in America that we're free to make those choices but we need to make choices I think that that propel us to be our best selves, and uh, and the fact that he, you know, he was just an avid reader. I run into people all the time, and as avid readers of great books, uh, I love conversations with them, Dr. Gelso.
2: Well, you would love a conversation with Lincoln then, because this was this was a man who, all right, on the one hand, he has next to nothing in the way of what you could call formal education. He once estimated that he went to school, probably when he added it all up, to not more than a year's worth of of basic education. And yet he has this voracious appetite for reading and for learning. He said his best friend would be the person who would lend him a book. And he read tremendously years later, his uh, his law partner, William Henry Herndon, actually made up a list of books that Lincoln kept in his law office. And you go down that list, Kim, and these are all the major writers of the nineteenth century. And so we're talking here, not not just easy marquee names. We're talking about the authors of books on political economy, of books on philosophy. And Lincoln is reading these books on science. He would subscribe to a series of volumes that came out as an annual on new horizons in science in the 1850s. And he ate these things up. There was no subject on which he would not show a curiosity. Someone at one point challenged him. They said, well, we want to describe you in a political biography as, um, as, as, as someone who has, who has read geometry. And Lincoln's response was, well, I haven't actually read all that much, so let me go out and get the book, and, and then I will read it. So all you had to do was challenge him and if there was a book that people were reading or a book that he thought would be important and would expand his horizon, he would, he would not only read it, but he would master the book because he had a terrific memory, not, not perhaps quite what we'd call a photographic memory, but something very close to it. He would read things over once, twice, maybe three times. He'd have them. He could quote them. He could quote huge stretches of Shakespeare, of other English poets of the 18th century, And people were astonished at that, because they would think, well, this man didn't really have much in the way of education. He never went to college. Where did he learn all this? Well, he learned it on his own hook. And as I say, people would be amazed when, given a moment, he would simply launch into a long recitation from Shakespeare.
1: Well, and my next question is, how did he learn to read? Because out here in Colorado, we just recently had an election, and I had a number of school board candidates on the show, and some of the percentages they, they were telling me of kids that were proficient in reading was like 30% of the, the kids are proficient in reading. That means that 70% are not, and we're spending big bucks on this. I said, I want my money back. Every child should be able to read. So how did he learn to read with no formal education?
2: He probably was taught at home because on the other side of the Appalachians, when he was growing up on the western side of the Appalachians, which in those days, that was what people called the West. When we talk about the West today, we're usually talking about, well, Pueblo, Colorado. But Back in Lincoln's day, the West was Kentucky. The West was Illinois. Growing up there, there were no public school systems at all. So people learned, if they were going to learn anything, they were going to learn at home, and their parents were going to teach them how to read, and the neighborhood was going to afford them exposure to books. And it was going to happen in that fashion, because it wasn't until much later in Lincoln's life that you begin to see the organization of public education in the states on the western side of the appalachians for lincoln it all has to begin at home it has to begin at his mother's knee and starting from there he moves ever relentlessly upwards in his mastery of books and he has a very healthy respect for education and for reading and he advises people Everything that we know in the world can be understood by reading. Reading is what unlocks all the riches of the world. And that for him was a rule he lived by.
1: Well, and I I really think that I mean we have so much that is thrown at us in the society now and I, again I we we need to make choices with what we do and certainly reading for leisure is is great but there's stuff out there now Dr. Gelzo, that is just junk how would you address that with your students
2: by telling them that there is such a thing as junk in print and (laughs) actually there is a great deal more of that junk on screens and my advice to them I can't say that everyone takes it but my advice to them would be find the books not the screens find the books because the books are what open up the world to you. Someone who is looking at something on a screen is entirely passive. They can be nothing more than what is on the screen. A book, a book explodes the mind. A book gives you access to realities that you can't touch. It gives you alternative universes you can inhabit. A book will move you to do things that a screen can never even come close to doing. So a book, well, Emily Dickinson, a contemporary of Lincoln's, once wrote a poem about how a book was like a frigate that could take you all around the world, over lands, over seas. And I have myself found anything to fault with that opinion, even though I'm a century and a half beyond both Dickinson and Lincoln. For me, books were what opened up the world. Reading was what opened up all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of vistas. Reading is, in some respects, the ultimate subversive activity. Because what else do tyrants want to do? First Mm -hmm. off, they want to control what people read. They want to control their media. They want to control their books. They want to burn books if they don't particularly like them. Reading... Reading turns people's minds to questioning. That's why in Orwell's 1984, it's books which have to go down the memory hole because books are dangerous. I remember the publication in the 1970s of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago. And when the volumes of it came out one by one in English, I would buy them. I was a college student then. And I would buy them, I would take them home, I would set myself up. I almost felt like I should put on a jacket and tie to read them. <laughs> but you read them, and suddenly the whole fictitious world that had been created by the Soviets and the Soviet Union, all of that fell to pieces. I remember there was a comment that was made by Bernard-Henri Levy, the French philosopher, a political philosopher, in which he said, Solzhenitsyn simply spoke, and the scales fell from our eyes. And he was talking about reading Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. It, more, more even than weapons of war, bombs, economic strategies, it was Solzhenitsyn's book that spelled the end of the Soviet Union. And reading that, for me, that was a liberating experience and reading has always been a liberating experience, as it was for Lincoln. He once described it in these terms. He was on his inaugural tour from Illinois to Washington. He stopped in Trenton, New Jersey, to speak to the New Jersey Senate. And being there in Trenton, he said, my mind has often revolved back to the scene of the Battle of Trenton and the Revolution. And I've often asked myself, what those soldiers in the revolution what were they really fighting for was it just separation from the mother country no they were fighting for something more they were fighting for an idea for a principle and it's an idea and a principle which is common to everyone around the world and he said how did i how did i learn about this i i learned about this because as a schoolboy i read a biography of washington describing the Battle of Trenton. Now picture this, Kim. Here is a boy way out in Kentucky or Indiana when he's reading this. Here's a boy reading about the Battle of Trenton. And that boy, years later, as President of the United States, is drawing a bright line from a book that he read as a boy. So the Principles that he would give his life defending as President of the United States. If that doesn't illustrate the importance of reading, I, I have a hard time imagining what would.
1: Dr. Gelzo, I just got chills on that. I'm talking with Dr. Alan Gelzo. We get to do these conversations because of great sponsors like Lauren Levy.
8: If you are 62 or older, a reverse mortgage could be a great tool regarding retirement and estate planning. It is essential to understand the process. Lauren Levy with Polygon Financial Group has nearly 20 years in the mortgage industry and has the experience to answer your questions. Lauren understands that each financial transaction is personal. If you'd like to explore your options on a reverse mortgage, remodel your home, buy a rental property, or move, Call Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. Licensed in 49 states, Kim Monson highly recommends Lauren Levy for all your mortgage needs. Call Lauren at 303-880-8881. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Monson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, kimmonson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com.
1: And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is M O N S O N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter, and you can email me at Kim at com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice on an independent station, and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. I did want to mention uh, Janssen Photography. Uh, Great entrepreneurs, uh, Glenn and Mary Janssen, uh, have been in business for a long time, creating memories for people, whether or not it is portraits of families or of children, portraits of your senior student, or if you need that great photo for your business or political career, Janssen Photography is the place to go. That website is Janssen, J-A-N-S-S-E-N photography.com We've pre-recorded the shows for this week with very special guests. I love it because then we have extra time. And uh, we're talking with Brad Miller, who is my instructor at ipac-edu.com org on a great course, Literature as Resistance. Ultimately, um, how to resist totalitarianism is the bottom line on that. And it's not too late to sign up. And so you can do that at ipac-edu.org. It's super reasonable, and it is so great. Uh, it really gets, the, just like this interview, getting your, your brain mo- uh, working. And so that is uh, so, so important. Brad Miller, this course is fascinating. And the stand that you took... Uh, as um, being in the army and in, as a colonel, and, and actually resigning right before retirement is is such an amazing story, and it's a story that needs to be heard. And how can people find out more about you?
4: Yeah, um, thanks for asking that, Kim. So the two easiest places to find me are at my Substack, which is just my name, Brad Miller one zero dot dot com. So again, that's BradMiller10 dot dot com, and also um, I'm on YouTube. You know, until they kick me off, which may happen at some point. But um, if you just go to YouTube and you search BradMiller10, uh, the videos that I've started making as well will, will come. Those those will come up. So in either place, it's BradMiller10, and should come up on YouTube and Substack.
1: Okay, and again, highly recommend that you check that out, and would love to have you join us in our course as well. We've been talking about, uh, well, we, we went through the the, the uh, course offerings, the books that are that we're reading, uh, but and the Hegelian dialectic. Uh, which basically um, can create a problem and then there's the reaction of the problem and then the solution can many times be uh, already determined uh, and how that's relating to the Delphi technique. I've learned a lot so I'm just trying to step back and be a person hearing this for the first time, this is the last segment on this. You know, how, how do you want to unpack this so that people can understand it just a, a, it's a little simpler as they're thinking about it?
4: Yeah, so what I would say is that whether it's with the, the dialectic or the Delphi technique, um, both of these are legitimate in their in their own way. It's just that when networks of powerful people have decided to use either the, the dialectic view or the use of the Delphi technique, to manipulate people that's of course when it becomes problematic so for us what that means is important for us to do is realize when our mode of thinking and therefore our actions is being constrained to a very narrow set of viewpoints or or a very narrow set of acceptable actions that's when we may have to ask ourselves what kind of techniques are being used to manipulate my opinions and or my actions and then how can I respond to be able to to break out of this? So for example, we were speaking about how the Delphi technique can be used a lot of times in these different types of of meetings where some sort of, let's say, some sort of city planning project has already been decided upon. However, the uh, opinions of the public are solicited, and yet when you show up and you're engaging in these discussions, you feel like you're not being heard or you feel like your opinion is only acceptable as long as it's within a narrow set of um of topics that you're allowed to address
1: so i have an example that i was thinking when i was on city council uh, we had a little neighborhood library that the people in that my community we loved people walked to it kids walked to it but but the library district and the city planners and the politicians wanted to have a big big library that more people would we'd have to drive to it and of course there's all the different arguments around driving walking you know there's there's all that out there but i suggested that perhaps we keep this library for this community uh and then have the other as well but they would have none of that and so they did a a listening tour they solicited uh from people they And and what was amazing is down at the library, our community library, they put up a a poster and said, what would you suggest that this building be used for? Because the city said they were going to purchase it from the library district. And what did you want it to to be? And uh, on that piece of paper... Uh, the number one answer was keep it as a library. But in the report given to us by staff, which was about 50-some pages long, that was not noted until like on you know page 45 or something like that. So as I was going through the packet, I'm like, oh, people want to keep this. So I asked that question of staff when they made the presentation, and they said, oh, well, that was not an option. I thought, oh, isn't that interesting?
4: Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. imagine that. And the the way in which a lot of that is done, so when you look at the way in which the Delphi technique is used, perhaps legitimately, as a decision-making or forecasting tool in the corporate world, uh, the way in which it's done is a, a group of experts are fed different questions to which they respond anonymously. And that's so that they don't bias each other or that one person's opinion because of their position uh, within the company is not necessarily um, – Ranked above the opinions of others, so there may be some legitimate reasons to do that in the corporate world when it's used, you know, in a in a in a real way. But a lot of times in this type of um, of situation, a lot of times these questions are fed via these surveys, and you answer again anonymously, and you may be picking um, a response that a lot of other people are picking as well, and it may be the most popular response. But then they will lead you to believe that your response, which may have been the most popular, was not the most popular or was an outlier opinion. That's what they may lead you to believe, again, because of the anonymous nature in which the questions are asked and the responses are noted. So there are a lot of these different types of techniques that they can do to kind of, if you have, if you have uh, an undesirable opinion, they can kind of corral you in the direction that they want you to go while allowing you to believe that your, uh, your input is valued.
1: Brad Miller, this is so antithetical to the way our country is supposed to work, though. I mean, we got to our our declaration, our Constitution, because of real debate, people really kicking tires on on the ideas and real debate and with a a real, I think, a virtuous goal uh, in mind as well. And so this whole thing being used in government, I, I, I think it's antithetical to our American idea.
4: I think you're exactly right. You know, debate, the reason that we debate, even when debates get heated, is because whichever side you may find yourself on, or even if you don't agree with either side in a particular debate, by debating, we expect better positions to emerge. In fact, that would actually be a, uh, a completely legitimate use of the dialectic, because the dialectic can be used legitimately in a debate or in um, in a courtroom trial where you have two sides that are in opposition to one another and then through the interplay of those two oppositional sides the hope is that what emerges what is the synthesis that emerges well it's the truth so debates can absolutely be used and that you know when you engage in debate um, when you're when you're arguing against someone else's position you are sharpening each other's understanding regardless of which position you, you may hold so Debates are completely legitimate, and when you see – whenever you feel like legitimate debate is not being held, you have to ask yourself if you believe that your opinions are being manipulated or if you believe that your thoughts are being shaped in a previously contrived direction.
1: Okay. Fascinating. We've got probably about four minutes left. And uh, I know it's not really enough time, but we've gone through the whole reaction to COVID, uh, and now we are looking at that hopefully in the rear view, rear view mirror. <laughs> um, but what do you think we learned as a country? Uh, I mean, I'm seeing people that that you know kind of bought into the whole COVID thing that first time, but now they're like, "No, no, no, no. So I think a lot of people are waking up. what What do you think, Brad?"
4: Uh, I think yes and no. I think some people have woken up, and they are not going to go back to sleep. And then I think, sadly, other people have woken up, and they're already st- uh, they're already starting to fall back asleep. And I would urge people, if COVID was what kind of pushed you to wake up, be in that first group. Um, when you wake up now, don't fall back asleep and start making other connections because you got to ask yourself. The government that is powerful enough to foist COVID and the reaction to COVID upon us, which very much followed the problem-reaction-solution model, they are power- this is not a one-and-done thing. They are going to continue to try and manipulate us into moving the directions they want society to go. And we've got to be awake to it, and we have to understand the tools and the techniques they use in order to manipulate us.
1: Well, that's why your voice is so important. And, again, uh, where can people find you, Brad Miller?
4: Yeah, so, again, you can find me at my Substack, which, again, is bradmiller10.substack.com. And then you can also find me on my YouTube. If you just go to YouTube and search Brad Miller one zero, then uh, my videos will come up. And I, I write quite a bit, just my thoughts about anything and everything. And the same with uh, the videos that I've started to make as well.
1: And, again, you're instructing this great course at ipac-edu.org, uh, where we're going through all of this uh, dystopian literature. It's a, a course that's uh, going to end up about 21 different um, Meetings, and we're in. Gosh, what number seven? Probably close seven. Are we yeah, that far? That's okay. right. That's but you
4: right. and we just go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, the classes are held on Thursday nights via Zoom. But if you miss a class or if you're you're just joining in now, you can always catch up on the previous recordings.
1: And absolutely. And we must remain vigilant and uh, sharpen our brains and understand what's going on. And Brad Miller is certainly doing that for many of us. And we'd love to have you all join us. So, Brad Miller, I wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. I thank you for joining us uh, for this very important interview. And we'll have more conversations.
4: Thank you so much. I appreciate being on, Kim, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to you as well.
1: And my friends, these are such important conversations. And our quote for the end of the show is from uh, JFK uh, talking about gratitude. He, he said, as we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. So my friends today, be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well if honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals and like Superman, stand for truth, justice and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. God bless you and God Bless America. And
5: I don't want no one to cry But tell them if I don't survive
1: The socialization of transportation, education, energy, housing, and water. What it means is that government controls it through rules and regulations.
0: The latest in politics and world affairs.
1: Under this guise of bipartisanship and nonpartisanship, it's actually tapping down the truth.
0: Today's current opinions and ideas.
1: On an equal field in the battle of ideas, mistruths and misconceptions is getting us into a world of hurt.
0: Is it freedom or is it force? Let's have a conversation.
1: And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter, and you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you so, who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. And I so appreciate each and every one of you, and I thank you for listening. So my friends today, strive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind and your body. We were made for this moment. And I get to work with an amazing team. That's producer Joe and the producers, Luke, uh, Nicole, Rachel, and then everybody, Zach, Echo, Charlie, and all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting, truly blessed. And we're thinking about many of our blessings and gratitude this week. Uh, We are pre-recording the shows for this week with very special guests. uh, And uh, I'm so pleased to have on the line with me Brad Miller. I'm actually taking a class that Brad Miller is teaching, but it's a pretty remarkable story. He is a West Point graduate and former lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. He served as a battalion commander at the time of the Department of Defense COVID-19 vaccine mandates and when those went into effect. And so he was relieved of his command for refusing to comply with the mandate. He subsequently resigned from the Army with just over 19 years of active service, and he is an outspoken voice for truth and freedom and encourages others to join the cause for Liberty Brad Miller welcome to the show
4: hey Kim well thanks so much for having me on I'm really happy to be here with you
1: you know and uh, when I have told people your story uh, that you retired just short of of retirement and people kind of their eyes get big and they say that's leaving a lot of money on the table. Does he have a wife? What did she think about that? I hadn't even really contemplated that when, when I, I first interviewed you.
4: Uh, Yeah. So, so no, it's just me. I'm not married. So um, I guess to some degree that does make the situation a little bit simpler. One, I didn't have to, necessarily consult with anybody else before I made the decision, and I don't have to worry about other mouths to feed other than just my own. But um, yeah, it it is true. I did resign from the military about eight and a half months shy of that 20-year mark that would have um, secured my pension. So certainly not a decision that I took lightly. And um, when I did take it, I mean, I knew exactly what I was leaving on the table when I decided to walk away.
1: And you and I talked about it in uh, our, our other interview, is there is there's certainly physical courage, which you have uh, by being in the Army. Uh, is it, was it 101st Airborne? Am I remembering right?
4: Yeah, that's correct. So the 101st Airborne is the division that I was in. That was my last, my last unit in the military. And um, I was a battalion commander within the 101st Airborne Division at the time that I was relieved and then later when I resigned, et cetera.
1: And, and so I, in all my work with veterans on my America's Veterans Story show, uh, I'd gone to Normandy in 2016 with a group that accompanied four D Day veterans to Normandy. One was just a young paratrooper, 101st Airborne. And as I looked at the landscape and heard about jumping in behind enemy lines on D Day and what that entailed, I, I just am thinking of the physical courage to do that and, and that there is that. But you and I talked about something that is somewhat different, and that is moral courage and going through this whole COVID-19 thing. The moral courage. I can't tell you, Brad, and I, I feel almost embarrassed to say this, but it took an act of courage for me to walk into the grocery store without a mask when everybody else was masked. It was Crazyville.
4: Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. So- So physical courage and moral courage are not exactly the same thing. Now, I would say you can have individuals that exhibit both at the same time, and you can certainly have individuals who have a very strong sense of moral courage and also a very strong sense of being able to act with physical courage, for sure. However, it's not necessarily a given that individuals that exhibit tremendous physical courage will also exhibit tremendous moral courage. I mean, they are... Uh, Though related, they are still separate and distinct phenomena. Um, and And that in no way, when I say that, I'm in no way diminishing the virtue of physical courage. I'm merely stating that we would hope in our military that we cultivate an ethos in which both of those virtues are prized.
1: Well, absolutely. So let, let's talk about. Uh, I mean, that certainly took moral courage. And this class that you're teaching for IPAC-EDU—that's I-P-A-K-EDU—highly recommend that people check out all the course offerings there. And this is—it's—it's it's amazing. Dr. James Lyons Weiler wanted to put something together where where the intellectually curious could be matched with amazing instructors at a reasonable price. And 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 continue to to learn, and this is a fascinating class. It is literature as resistance towards totalitarianism. My my friend Christy Whaley, who's in the class, says Kim always remember that because I talk about it on the show. It is a remarkable class, and I'm I'm just sit back in awe at the other students and how smart they are.
4: Yeah, it's a pretty incredible group that we have in the class. So you mentioned Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, and um, your audience may be very familiar with him, but he developed IPAC-EDU, which uh, any of the listeners can find very easily at IPAC-EDU.org. They can go there. They can see the catalog of about 30 courses, and uh, there's a wide spectrum of courses that are available. But when he and I spoke a couple of months ago, uh, and we were we were thinking about different types of courses that we could offer to expand the 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 curricula that we we have already available. And so we actually conducted a survey with several different ideas of courses um, more in a in a humanities type realm, and this was the course that seemed to resonate. With individuals, when we pitched this idea as part of the survey, there were more people that responded favorably to this course than some other ideas that we had also come up with. So we decided, okay, well let's build the curriculum. So I, uh, I took a couple of weeks and I came up with the curriculum that now is the course that we have um, we've started to kind of make our way through. And, and, and as you know, we're a couple of lessons in.
1: Well, it is an absolutely fascinating class, and I'm learning so much. And really, it's not too late if so, if people want to join us because you've added two more classes. It's it was 19 weeks. We're not that far into it. People could uh, actually take the class, could look at the, uh, could view the previous classes uh, online and get caught up. Yes.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so we're a couple of lessons in. But as you mentioned, I originally designed the course to be taught over about 19 lessons i think now it's going to end up being closer to 21 lessons so people can easily catch up if they go to ipac-edu.org look for the course again the title is called literature as resistance and the subtitle equally important is recognizing unmasking and countering totalitarian tendencies but if they go and they sign up they can easily just jump right in where we are and they can catch up with the previous lessons that they've already missed by just catching up on the uh the recorded class presentations which will be made available to them when they sign up so you're right not too late to sign up we've got a a great uh, i would say a great curriculum of works of literature that we are going through we are trying to understand those works of literature in terms of the the narrative presented, but also using those works, and we'll discuss in a minute what exactly those are, but using them as an interpretive lens to better analyze the world in which we live in right now in 2023.
1: Well, it is absolutely fascinating. And I'm talking with Brad Miller and uh, the discussions that we're going to have for this show. And again, we pre-recorded this for the week of Thanksgiving uh, is going to be absolutely fascinating. I get to do this because of all your support out there. And also because I have great sponsors. I know each of every one of them personally and highly recommend them. And one of those is Johnny Stubbs Heating and Air Conditioning Services.
5: Johnny Stubbs Services uses only the best quality products to ensure that your heating and cooling systems run efficiently and last for years. Johnny Stubbs Services' team of experts is available to provide the proper guidance and help you make informed decisions about your heating and cooling needs. Johnny Stubbs Services prides themselves on delivering prompt and reliable service and stands behind their work with a satisfaction guarantee. JohnnyStubServices.com, the trusted contractor for all your heating and air conditioning needs. That's JohnnyStubServices.com.
6: With the limited number of homes in the Colorado Front Range market, Karen Levine can help you achieve your home buying or selling vision. Karen has the right connections, technology, and strategies to help you buy or sell your home or to purchase a new build. Whether you're feeling overwhelmed or want someone to take the wheel, or you just need a second opinion, you can rest assured the Remax realtor Karen Levine is the right agent for you. Call Karen Levine at 303-877-7516. Karen is the trusted professional who strives for excellence. That number is 303-877-7516.
8: You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Monson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, kimmunson.com. That's Kim, M O N S O N.com. <laughs>
1: And welcome back to the Kim Munson show. Be sure to check out our website. That is Kim Munson, dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at Kim com as well. And I am talking with Brad Miller and he is the instructor for a class that I am taking, uh, which is just a really interesting class uh, offered by through IPAC dash edu. And uh, Brad Miller was uh, a West Point grad. He also was a, a colonel in the army and he resigned just short of retirement because uh, refusing to take the COVID um, jab. And so really a lot of moral courage in doing so. So he is now teaching this course at IPAC-EDU. And it's such an interesting course and interesting reading. So tell us, how did you select the books that we are, are studying?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. So I wanted to pick the books that are, at least some of them, they need to be the books that are kind of almost accepted as the quote-unquote Western canon of dystopian literature. So, of course, we're reading 1984. How do you have a a course on dystopian literature without reading 1984? And then right behind that, well, you got to read Brave New World. And I felt like, well, you have to read Fahrenheit 451. So I kind of started with those three, and then I thought, you know what? A lot of people in the West are unfamiliar with the Russian novel from the early 20s that is simply titled We, W-E, written by Yevgeny Zamyatin, And that book was known to have influenced George Orwell, but a lot of people in the West are still unfamiliar with it, even 100 years after it was originally written. And then um, I also wanted to kind of round out the curriculum by including a short story, which we actually read first, almost as a primer to get the class kind of thinking with this type of literature. And that short story is is, um, was written by E.M. Forster, and it's called The Machine Stops. And then we actually round out the curriculum at the end with a movie. So uh, that movie is called Metropolis. It's from 1927. And um, it is from the German director Fritz Lang. So that's the, uh, that's the curriculum. We read The Machine Stops, then 1984, then Brave New World, then Fahrenheit 451, then We, and then we finish up with the movie Metropolis.
1: Well, and it's not too late for people to join us. If uh, if you want to do that, go to ipac-edu.org. And uh, it is literature as resistance, is the the title of the class. And again, we'd love to have you join us. And I have to also mention the tuition is so inexpensive. Uh, I think it's $180 for what's going to end up to be 21 weeks with an amazing instructor like Brad Miller. And if you put in Munson, uh, Dr. Jack is actually giving giving you a little bit of a discount as well. So we would love to have you join us. When you say dystopian, Brad Miller, I feel we're living in a dystopian reality or irreality. I don't know. It's surreal what's going on right now. And so that's why I think this class is so important.
4: Yeah, I agree. And I think that um, what's interesting with this course is a lot of people have read these books before But maybe they read them 20 years ago they read them now and they're reading them almost with completely different eyes because we are living through a lot of what we're you you read 1984 for example and um and it just it speaks to you a lot differently than if you have only read the book before 20 25 years ago in the past i guarantee you, you're going to read it now with what we've been living through and you're going to see it completely differently
1: and I'm, I I I I just kind of understand in my gut uh th- these stories I somehow I I have always kind of realized that we we have this um potential of what is happening in in the books 1984 for example and here we are with it it's almost surreal as we were going through the whole thing on covid I I just felt like it was a bad dream
3: Yeah
4: I think most people would agree with you and it's incredible to see um, almost what what governments are capable of. I guess that's a good way to put it. I mean, that's 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 scary. I mean, it's a terrible way to put it, but um, it's just. I think a lot of people. If we were to rewind the clock four years ago, um, almost nobody would be able to kind of have the foresight to see exactly what we lived through the last, you know, three and a half, almost four years now.
1: Well, and what governments are are capable of i mean one of the things is i've i've looked at at history and there are you know different different entities that people want to make be the the boogeyman that does really bad things but ultimately it's government that does the really bad things because government has the the uh kind of the monopoly on force if you will
4: yeah i think you're right at the end of the day um Government has. You're right. They have the monopoly on force, um, and we see that a lot when we read these. When we read these uh, these works of literature, is um, it can almost you can almost read these and come away with a sense of hopelessness, which is not necessarily the intent of the course. The intent of the course is, hey, let's have a realistic appraisal of the situation that we're in, but. Let's also talk about how to cultivate a resistance-type mindset, and let's talk about ways in which we can exploit some of the weaknesses that are inherent in the system and also, crucially important, understand some of the tools that are being used against us so we at least know how to resist because we can at least identify what it is that we need to resist.
1: Well, and there's a couple of tools that I – I I think it'll be really interesting. We're going to talk about them. And one of those is the Hegelian dialectic. And I think you're probably the person to talk to about that. And then the other is something called the Delphi technique. And when I was on city council from 2012 to 2016, I could, I would be in these different meetings and I would see things going on and, and getting to, it looked to me like foregone conclusions, but trying to make people feel like they're part of the conversation. And I... It took me a while to figure out what what that is. I think it's the Delphi technique, and so we're going to talk with uh, Brad Miller about that as well. Uh, But before we do that, I wanted to mention the USMC Memorial Foundation, which is a nonprofit that I dearly love. The Marine Memorial, its official Marine Memorial, is here in uh, Golden, Colorado at 6th and Colfax. And Paula Sarles, who is the president of the Marine Memorial, she is a gold star wife, a Marine. Uh, She and her team are working diligently to raise the money for the remodel of the Marine Memorial, and you can help them by going to USMCMemorialFoundation.org. And a great gift for Christmas or Hanukkah would be to honor your loved one's military service uh, with a a gift of uh, a brick on one of the walkways. And you can do that by going to USMCMemorialFoundation.org. And again, all the information is there, and uh, I would highly recommend that you help out and honor your loved one as well. We get to have these conversations because we have amazing Sponsors who I know personally, and one of those is Roger Mangan. And it is Thanksgiving week, and we have pre recorded all of these interviews for the week. And we're talking a lot about gratitude this week, and I am very grateful to work with amazing people. And one of those is Roger Mangan and his State Farm Insurance team. Roger, it's great to have you in studio, and what's your thoughts on gratitude? Boy, that's a big
3: question. uh, Gratitude. I remember when I went to Europe the first time, went to Spain, spent a week there with my wife, and it was an interesting experience. The people there were wonderful. But one of the things, and of course I was 37 or 8 and really excited about everything in life. I still am, but it was a different form of excitement. But I noticed the people didn't have a lot of Opportunity to move up the social ladder. When you talk to someone about what they did, if they were a bricklayer, well, my dad was a bricklayer, and his dad before him, it was a whole different kind of feel about. And that really is comes down to socialism in most of Europe. Um, so there's limitations put or in place, put in place by society in those cultures. When I got back to the United States, literally got off the airplane and kissed the ground, thought, am I lucky to live in this country where if I think I can do something, I probably can do it. If I make up my mind to get it done. Um, That doesn't exist in a lot of places in the world. I think we take it for granted. We ought to be thankful and Yes, a lot of gratitude for living here
1: in this wonderful country called the United States of America. Well, and we and, uh, you know, one of the reasons that we do the show, Roger, is because we are in this big battle of ideas that's going on right now. And and it's it's not Democrat versus Republican. It's not right versus left. It's, it's a bigger questions than that. It's right versus wrong and the American idea. And so we need to understand, appreciate it, be grateful for it, and then protect it.
3: You know, we hear about, a lot about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I would challenge anybody to prioritize which one of those are the most important, life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness. If you can't, and I think it's pursuit of happiness, and happiness is defined by your ability to reach the level of your motivation to improve the world or yourself. Happiness is something you cannot get from the government stepping in and subsidizing whatever it is you're doing, whether it's business or COVID or you name it. I think Winston Churchill said it so well, and I'm not sure I can repeat the quote, but I'm going to try. He says, you know, the government can't take something or give something to you that they haven't already taken from you. And that is so true. When the government gives us something, where did they get the money to do that. Well, they got it from us, since so they're giving it back to us. So
1: I'd rather keep the government out of my life as much as I can. Well, and uh, that was uh, in, inherent in the American idea. And of course, the Pilgrims came to America uh, t- for freedom of religion, freedom, freedom. And, and when you mentioned this economic mobility, uh, that's the that's the amazing thing about Am- America. If you if, as if you work hard. Uh, you really will probably succeed. It may not initially be exactly what you thought you were going to do, but I think the good Lord has his hand on, on those things as well, Roger.
3: Yes, I, uh, mm. as a young person, I received a, uh, my B.A. degree from Upper Iowa University, a school I support today, and then my master's degree was from the University of Iowa and then I went on to get a what they call an EDS degree to become a superintendent of schools and a principal. And I was in education 16 years of my life. And I realized that there was a, it wasn't a glass ceiling. It was really a ceiling. And I love teachers. They do so much for us. And they're so underappreciated. And they're paid so poorly. And uh, our society really needs to get its priorities mm-hmm. rearranged to put focus
1: and finance where it belongs to improve the lives of others. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and that is so important. And, Roger, I, I'm so grateful for you. And uh, I just really want to wish you and your family a really, really happy Thanksgiving. Well, back to you. You bet. Same oh. to you. And we'll be right back.
8: If you are 62 or older, a reverse mortgage could be a great tool regarding retirement and estate planning. It is essential to understand the process. Lauren Levy with Polygon Financial Group has nearly 20 years in the mortgage industry and has the experience to answer your questions. Lorne understands that each financial transaction is personal. If you'd like to explore your options on a reverse mortgage, remodel your home, buy a rental property, or move... Call Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. Licensed in 49 states, Kim Monson highly recommends Lauren Levy for all your mortgage needs. Call Lauren at 303-880-8881.
6: Our future depends on educated, informed, and active citizens. You could do your part by reading Dr. James Lyons-Weiler's latest articles at Popular Rationalism on Substack. That's popularrationalism.substack.com.
1: Yeah. Welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter, and you can email me at Kim at Munson.com as well. I did want to mention the Center for American Values, which is located in Pueblo, Colorado. Pueblo is known as the home of heroes because there are four Medal of Honor recipients that grew up in Pueblo. One of those is a co-founder of the Center for American Values, and that is Drew Dix. And he was awarded the Medal of Honor for actions he took during the... Vietnam War during the Tet Offensive. But they're doing two things there at the center. They're honoring our Medal of Honor recipients, but also putting together educational programs so that we can remember our values of honor, integrity, and patriotism and teach those to our children so they have these great educational programs. More information, you can go to org. That's org. On the line with me is Brad Miller. He's a West Point graduate, former lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. And uh, he actually Actually, uh, resigned just short of uh, retirement because uh, of really moral courage. I would say refusing to take the jab or forcing uh, those under his command to take the jab. So it this this is a man who truly walks his talk, and he is the instructor of a class that I'm taking through ipac-edu.org. Check it out. It's literature as resistance, uh, and basically, what's the rest of the title on that? Brad Miller.
4: Yeah, the subtitle is Recognizing, Unmasking, and Countering Totalitarian Tendencies.
1: Okay, so let's start with recognizing. I've heard the term Hegelian dialectic, and over the years I've tried to understand it. In a way, I feel like the whole COVID thing was part of a Hegelian dialectic, but explain what that Hegelian dialectic is, Brad.
4: Yeah, that's a fantastic question, and I think it is something that is— essential for us to understand right now in, in being able to see what's going on in our world and understanding some of the methods that are used to control the way in which we, the populace think and act. So let's talk about the Hegelian dialectic. There's a lot to unpack there, but let's see if we can demystify it a little bit. So the Hegelian dialectic, first and foremost, what is a dialectic? So dialectics have been around as a mode of thinking or arriving at the truth for a long time. This goes back to Plato. At least some people would say it goes back even um, even further than Plato. You know, perhaps to Pythagoras, who a lot of people may remember from you know high school geometry class. But it's been around for well over 2,000 years. Now, the dialectic, simply stated, is a way in which you arrive at the truth, often by um, through the the interplay of opposites. So. When you think of a dialect, a dialectic, it is a construct of ideas, concepts, themes, even political parties which are in opposition to one another. You fast forward through time, and you get to the German philosopher Hegel. So Hegel, who's considered to be you know, probably the, the, the most difficult Western philosopher to understand, and some people would say that the Hegelian dialectic doesn't even necessarily come from Hegel – It comes from inputs from other philosophers, such as Immanuel Kant or another philosopher named Fichte. That's not necessarily super important for us if we just need to understand how is this as a tool that's being used against us. So what is the Hegelian dialectic? The Hegelian dialectic sometimes is um, described as problem, reaction, solution, that's probably a mode of thought that a lot of people are familiar with, they've heard of it, and even if they're not super familiar with it, by just hearing it, they can kind of intuit as to what that might mean. But let's take it a little bit further. Another way, um, a slightly more complex way in which to understand the Hegelian dialectic would be in terms of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So let's break that down. With a Hegelian dialectic, you start with an original idea or a concept or a theme a group of people a political party that is known as your thesis you put that into opposition with another idea or theme or concept that is called the antithesis or the antithesis and then the struggle or the opposition of those two competing ideas will allow the emergence of another idea which is called the synthesis, and then the process could go on and on and on and on, because when you get the emergence of a new synthesis, it could become a thesis that is then put into opposition with another anti-thesis, et cetera, etc., etc. So again, so just to, to rehash and kind of simplify that a bit, the Hegelian dialectic um, can be used as a control mechanism when you have powerful networks that control both sides of an oppositional construct in which the people feel like they must identify with one side against the other. And a lot of times this is done in order to arrive at a predetermined solution by those in power, while the people feel like they must side with either Team A or Team B against the other. So I'll I'll stop there. Um, Maybe we can reflect a little bit more on that to continue to kind of... um, Illuminate or or elucidate the point.
1: Okay, I'm going to go to now. You um, made me think of something when I was on City Council, and uh, actually, I I even without the descriptors. I mean, there were people that said they were Republicans, Democrats, but what I realized as the years went by that they really were pushing this this big government control. You know. Antithetical to um, how government is supposed to, to work in America, where the people that are elected are representatives of the people. They do hire, hire staff, uh, certainly, to do the duty of, of the city. But what I saw then was. Uh, actually that uh, staff might be pushing agendas. I mean, I, it was a real eye-opening experience. I'll just put it like that. So, the, the the presentation was the mayor wanted to have a pedestrian bridge. Now, at this particular point in time, uh, there had been no study to see if there would be a need for a, pe- pe- a pedestrian bridge, and he hired the most expensive archi- well, one of the most expensive architects in the Denver metro area to come up with three different Different plans. Uh, and that was actually the architect that was the architect for Denver International Airport as well. So, a, as a representative of the people, I'm thinking first of all, A, do we need this bridge? But B, this seems like this is going to cost a lot of money. But so then he had three different mock ups made of the three different choices from the one architect and brought those forward and tried to make it look like we were actually making a decision. Um, but but all three were interrelated. Am, am I getting close to maybe a, a Hegelian dialectic at all? Does that make any sense?
4: It, it does. And um, and you also mentioned previously the Delphi technique, which to a large degree is related to the Hegelian dialectic. And the Delphi technique can be used by again those in power to make people believe that they have a part in a process when in reality. There's already an outcome that has been decided upon and uh, any participation from the public is really just theater.
1: And, boy, we see that all the time now. Uh, I see this with listening tours by uh, uh, politicians and bureaucrats. I see this all the time. Uh, or even on the, the uh, national level, uh, right now there is apparently a comment time regarding the FCC and, and um, taking more control of the Internet. But there's comment periods. But I think people are getting the point. They're like, do they really listen? Does it matter?
4: Yeah. So there was um, there was an author who talked a lot a bit uh, a lot about this um, in a 2011 book. The author's name was Rosa Corey, and she spoke a lot about the use of the Delphi technique to do exactly what you're talking about in a lot of these um, these city planning meetings or other other meetings in which ostensibly the um, the input from the public is sought after, right? But then you you come away asking yourself, well. Who heard my inputs? And it seemed like I was only able to talk about um, certain things, but only within these previously defined parameters. How come I couldn't answer, or how come I couldn't ask these questions, or how come they wouldn't respond to uh, this type of inquiry, et cetera? So the Delphi technique actually is a a forecasting model or a process for decision-making that came, it, it still exists in the corporate world, but it came out of the Rand Corporation. So the RAND Corporation, as originally designed, was, um, was under the Air Force. I believe now technically it's, it's separate and distinct. But you have kind of this corporate decision-making or forecasting model, but a lot of times it can be used in order to generate the thought that people are arriving at a consensus when in reality – The parameters of the decision making are so narrowly defined that the outcome has already been previously decided upon. And so the whole the whole process of going through and providing input and arriving at a consensus is contrived.
1: What do we do about this, Brad Miller?
4: Well, um, this author that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Rosa Coyery, so she talks about this in a book called Behind the Green Mask, which is about Agenda 21, and she talks about the exact types of meetings that you're referring to. And in the book, she actually describes a process that she refers to as the anti-Delphi technique. Now, I, I personally prefer the term counter-Delphi as opposed to anti-Delphi, but I just think it's, it's slightly more appropriate. But um, she, she gives a, a, uh, a technique in which you and potentially a couple partners might be able to go into a meeting and counter the, the use of the Delphi technique against you. And what she says in her book is if you and, and another person or preferably maybe two or three other people can arrive at one of these city planning meetings, you arrive separately – You never acknowledge one another so that no one knows that you're together and potentially working together. And then you each try and support each other um, as you are kind of challenging the facilitators in this process. And you try and get everyone else in the meeting to realize that these facilitators are um, basically they're involving you in a contrived process and they're not allowing you to ask more fundamental questions they're only asking you or they're only allowing you to give inputs or ask questions about superficial parts of the project but they will never allow you to ask why has this project already been decided upon or how come you facilitators represent an NGO and not our elected you know municipal or county or state level representatives you know people who have been elected to be in office so you try and get the facilitators to step outside of the predetermined parameters by asking them the more fundamental questions so that others who are present can realize that um, this process is entirely contrived and they're not actually soliciting the input of the populace. It's all, you know, it's all theater.
1: Oh, that's so interesting that you would say that. This uh, We're going to have to do, I think, another show because uh, we only have one more segment after this. I'm talking with Brad Miller, who is the instructor uh, for the class that I'm taking from ipac-edu.org, Dr. James Linesweiler's uh, great courses. We'd love to have you join us. There's still plenty of time, so go to ipac-edu.org and sign up because uh, you can see that it is absolutely fascinating, really gets get your brain going. We get to do this show because we have wonderful sponsors. One of those sponsors is John Boson with Boson Law.
7: A recent report notes that the number of children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder is consistently and dramatically increasing. This is heartbreaking. If your child or grandchild or someone you know has been diagnosed with autism or ADHD following exposure to Tylenol or acetaminophen during pregnancy, call Boson Law at 303 9999. Boson Law is a Colorado-based law firm who has been fighting big pharma for over 20 years. Call now at 303-999-9999 for a free, no-obligation review of your potential claim. Call now at 303-999-9999.
1: Focused and wise marketing is essential for your success, especially during tough economic times. If you love The Kim Munson Show, strive for excellence and understand the importance of engaging in the battle of ideas that is raging in America. Then talk with Kim about partnership, sponsorship opportunities. Email Kim at KimMunson.com. Kim focuses on creating relationships with
4: individuals
1: and businesses that are tops in their fields. So they are the trusted experts listeners turn to when looking for products or services. Kim personally endorses each of her sponsors. Again, reach out to Kim at KimMunson.com. welcome back to the Kim Munson show be sure and check out our website that is Kim Munson M O N S O N com sign up for our weekly email newsletter and you can email me at Kim at Kim Munsoncom as well thank you to all of you who support us we are an independent voice on an independent station and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force force versus freedom if something's a good idea you should not have to force people to do it I uh, did want to mention uh, Janssen photography uh, great entrepreneurs uh, Glenn and Mary Jansen uh, have been in business for a long time, creating memories for people, whether or not it is portraits of families or of children, portraits of your senior student, or if you need that great photo for your business or political career, Jansen Photography is the place to go. That website is Janssen, J-A-N-S-S-E-N, photography.com. Uh, we've pre-recorded the shows for this week with very special guests. I love it because then we have extra time. And uh, we're talking with Brad Miller, who is my instructor at ipac-edu.com org on a great course, Literature as Resistance. Ultimately, um, how to resist totalitarianism is the bottom line on that. And it's not too late to sign up. And so you can do that at ipac-edu.org. It's super reasonable, and it is so great. Uh, it really gets, the, just like this interview, getting your, your brain mo- uh, working. And so that is uh, so, so important. Brad Miller, this course is fascinating. And the stand that you took... Uh, as um, being in the army and in, as a colonel, and, and actually resigning right before retirement is is such an amazing story, and it's a story that needs to be heard. And how can people find out more about you?
4: Yeah, um, thanks for asking that, Kim. So the two easiest places to find me are at my Substack, which is just my name, Brad Miller one zero dot substack dot com. So again, that's BradMiller10 dot substack dot com, and also um, I'm on YouTube. You know, until they kick me off, which may happen at some point. But um, if you just go to YouTube and you search BradMiller10, um, the videos that I've started making as well will, will come. Those those will come up. So in either place, it's BradMiller10, and should come up on YouTube and Substack.
1: Okay, and again, highly recommend that you check that out, and would love to have you join us in our course as well. We've been talking about, uh, well, we, we went through the the, the uh, course offerings, the books that are that we're reading, uh, but and the Hegelian dialectic, uh, which basically um, can create a problem, and then there's the reaction to the problem, and then the solution can many times be uh, already determined, uh, and how that's relating to the Delphi technique. I, I've learned a lot, so I'm just trying to step back and be a person th- hearing this for the first time. This is the last segment on this. You know, how, how do you want to unpack this so that people can understand it? Just a, a, It's a little simpler as they're thinking about it.
4: Yeah, so what I would say is that whether it's with the, the dialectic or the Delphi technique, um, both of these are legitimate in their, in their own way. It's just that when networks of powerful people have decided to use either the, the dialectic view or the use of the Delphi technique to manipulate people, that's, of course, when it becomes problematic. So for us, what that means is important for us to do is realize when our mode of thinking and, therefore, our actions – is being constrained to a very narrow set of viewpoints or, or a very narrow set of acceptable actions that's when we may have to ask ourselves what kind of techniques are being used to manipulate my opinions and or my actions and then how can i respond to be able to to break out of this so for example we were speaking about how the delphi technique can be used a lot of times in these different types of of meetings where some sort of let's say some sort of city planning project has already been decided upon however the uh, opinions of the public are solicited and yet when you show up and you're engaging in these discussions you feel like you're not being heard or you feel like your opinion is only acceptable as long as it's within a narrow set of um of topics that you're allowed to address
1: so I have an example that I was thinking when I was on city council. Uh, we had a little neighborhood library that the people in that com- my community we loved. People walked to it, kids walked to it. But, but the library district and the city planners and the politicians wanted to have a big, big library that more people would. We'd have to drive to it, and of course, there's all the different arguments around driving, walking. You know, there's there's all that out there, but. I suggested that perhaps we keep this library for this community uh, and then have the other as well but they would have none of that and so they did a, a listening tour they solicited uh, from people they and, and what was amazing is down at the library our community library they put up a a poster and said what would you suggest that this building be used for because the city said they were going to purchase it from the library district and what did you want it to, to be and uh, on that piece of paper, uh, the number one answer was keep it as a library. But in the report given to us by staff, which was about 50-some pages long, that was not noted until, like, on you know page 45 or something like that. So as I was going through the packet, I'm like, oh, people want to keep this. So I asked that question of staff when they made the presentation, and they said, oh, well, that was not an option. I thought, oh, isn't that interesting?
4: Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, imagine that. And the, the way in which a lot of that is done – so when you look at the way in which the Delphi technique is used, perhaps legitimately, as a decision-making or forecasting tool in the corporate world, uh, the way in which it's done is a, a group of experts are fed different questions – to which they respond anonymously and that's so that they don't bias each other or that one person's opinion because of their position uh within the company is not necessarily um ranked above the opinions of others so there may be some legitimate reasons to do that in the corporate world when it's used you know in a in a, in a real way but a lot of times in this type of um of situation a lot of times these questions are fed via these surveys and you answer again anonymously and you may be picking um, a response that a lot of other people are picking as well, and it may be the most popular response, but then they will lead you to believe that your response, which may have been the most popular, was not the most popular or was an outlier opinion that 's what they may lead you to believe again because of the anonymous nature in which the questions are asked and the responses are noted so there are a lot of these different types of techniques that they can do to kind of if you have If you have uh, an undesirable opinion, they can kind of corral you in the direction that they want you to go while allowing you to believe that your, uh, your input is valued.
1: Brad Miller, this is so antithetical to the way our country is supposed to work, though. I mean, we got to our our declaration, our Constitution, because of real debate, people really kicking tires on on the ideas and real debate and with a a real, I think, a virtuous goal uh, in mind as well. And so this whole thing being used in government, I, I, I think it's antithetical to our American idea.
4: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, debate the reason that we debate, even when debates get heated, is because whichever side you may find yourself on or even if you don't agree with either side in a particular debate, by debating, we expect better positions to emerge. In fact, that would actually be a uh, a completely legitimate use of the dialectic. Because the dialectic can be used legitimately in a debate, or in um, in a courtroom trial, where you have two sides that are in opposition to one another, and then through the interplay of those two oppositional sides, the hope is that what emerges, what is the synthesis that emerges, well, it's the truth. So, debates can absolutely be used, and that you know, when you engage in debate, um, when you're when you're arguing against someone else's position, you are sharpening each other's understanding, regardless of which position you you may hold. So. Debates are completely legitimate, and when you see, um, whenever you feel like legitimate debate is not being held, you have to ask yourself if you believe that your opinions are being manipulated, or if you believe that your thoughts are being shaped in a previously contrived direction.
1: Okay, fascinating. We've got probably about four minutes left, and uh, I know it's not really enough time, but we've gone through the whole reaction to COVID. Uh, and now we are looking at that, hopefully in the rear view rear view mirror. <laughs> um, but what do you think we learned as a country? Uh, I mean, I'm seeing people that that you know kind of bought into the whole COVID thing that first time, but now they're like, no, 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 no. So I think a lot of people are waking up. What What do you think, Brad?
4: Uh, I think yes and no. I think some people have woken up and they are not gonna go back to sleep. And then I think sadly, other people have woken up and they're already st- uh, they're already starting to fall back asleep. And I would urge people, if COVID was what kind of pushed you to wake up, be in that first group. Um, when you wake up now, don't fall back asleep and start making other connections because you gotta ask yourself, the government that is powerful enough to foist COVID and the reaction to COVID upon us, which very much followed the problem reaction solution model, They are power. This is not a one and done thing. They are going to continue to try and manipulate us into moving the directions they want society to go. And we've got to be awake to it. And we have to understand the tools and the techniques they use in order to manipulate us.
1: Well, that's why your voice is so important. And again, where can people find you, Brad Miller?
4: Yeah, so again, you can find me at my Substack, which again is bradmiller10.substack.com. And then you can also find me on my YouTube. If you just go to YouTube and search Brad Miller One Zero, then uh, my videos will come up. And I, I write quite a bit, just my thoughts about anything and everything. And the same with uh, the videos that I've started to make as well.
1: And, again, you're instructing this great course at ipac-edu.org, uh, where we're going through all of this uh, dystopian literature. It's a, a course that's uh, going to end up about 21 different um, Meetings and we're in. Gosh, what number seven? Probably close seven. Are we that far? That's right. But you and we just go ahead.
4: I was just going to say, yeah, the classes are held on Thursday nights via Zoom. But if you miss a class or if you're you're just joining in now, you can always catch up on the previous recordings.
1: And absolutely. And we must remain vigilant and uh, sharpen our brains and understand what's going on. And Brad Miller is certainly doing that for many of us. And we'd love to have you all join us. So, Brad Miller, I wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. I thank you for joining us uh, for this very important interview. And we'll have more conversations.
4: Thank you so much. I appreciate being on, Kim, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to you as well.
1: And my friends, these are such important conversations. And our quote for the end of the show is from uh, JFK, uh, talking about gratitude. He, he said, As we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. So, my friends, today be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, if honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. God bless you. And God bless America. And I don't
5: want no one to cry, but tell them if I don't survive.